0: Because we lead not only by the example of our power, but by the power of our example. That is the history of the journey of America.
1: It's the Irishman in America with me, Jarlith Regan, over here and Marion McKeon over there. First, we really do need to talk about Tyre Nichols, his death and his funeral this week, Marion. It's just one of the saddest stories I think I've ever had to cover on this show.
0: Yeah, sad. And and I think also so disheartening for so many reasons and for so many people in Memphis. I Just by by way of background to this story, it's one of those grim coincidence, coincidences that 55 years ago, I think in April, the coming April this year, will be the anniversary of Martin Luther King's death in Memphis, Tennessee. He was shot dead there when he was attending. There had been a strike of sanitation workers in Memphis after Two black sanitation workers had been killed. They'd been crushed by a truck, and then the other workers went on strike. and Martin Luther King had gone there to basically to stand alongside the workers and encourage them in their bid for their battle for better conditions and better pay. And he was shot dead there. And of course, you know, the last time when that happened, this massive church, the Mason Church, was packed out around that time for his speech and for the aftermath. And on. Wednesday, the funeral of Tyre Nichols took place in the same church 55 years later, another black man who who died tragically and, and brutally. And so, just to put this in context, Tyre Nichols was a 29 year old FedEx worker who lived with his mother and his stepfather in Memphis. He was also a skateboarder and an amateur photographer, and he had lived in Sacramento, in California for several years, where he took care of his father, his father was terminally ill. After his father died, he moved back to Memphis to be with his mother and his stepfather, who he had a close relationship with, and he indeed got him a job in FedEx, where he worked when he returned to Memphis. And By all accounts, like what he did most evenings and what he was doing the evening of his death on January 7th was, he loved to go skateboarding in a big park outside Memphis, and he could see the sunset from there. And he would also bring his camera and take photographs of sunsets, you know, because, as I said, he was an amateur photographer. A 29-year-old who had no history of any kind of criminal records, not even of any description, large or small, never had been in trouble with the law in any way, and by all accounts was just a really nice guy. He was a tall guy; he was six foot three, but he only weighed 145 pounds. Now. I am five foot six, and I'm about where I'm at on the Mm. scales, and you know. But he had Crohn's disease, and as a result, he was quite physically frail. He was driving home from work, as we said, on the evening of January seventh, and he was his car. He his car was suddenly surrounded by unmarked police cars, and the officers who were part of a unit in Memphis called the Scorpion Street Crimes Unit. It was an elite unit set up in November 2021. And they were supposed to tackle carjackings, murders, gang activity, that kind of thing. Traffic offenses are not in their remit whatsoever, anyway, they claimed that they approached him because he had he had created some kind of an unspecified traffic violation. We still don't know if that was even the case. But what I do know because I've spoken to several police officers and a former lieutenant in Los Angeles who said Los Angeles had a similar elite gang that was also elite that was also disbanded. And what he told me was, he said, look, often with these elite units, they'll stop a car because in a high crime area, because they think there's a good chance. And particularly if the driver is black or Hispanic, they believe that there's a good chance there'll be something that they might find a gun in the car that is illegal. They might find drugs in the car. And this way they beef up their numbers. And these special elite units, he said, it's a numbers game. They're set up, they're given all kinds of powers, all kinds of uh, sort of, you know, Look the other way, stuff. but their job is to prove that they have made as many arrests as possible, that they've taken as many guns off the street as possible, and that they are cleaning up the streets. Now, in the case of the Memphis, there, there have been several complaints about this Scorpion unit in Memphis. And in response, the chief of police, Carolyn Davis, had said just a couple of weeks earlier, look, they've taken 800 guns off the street that were illegal guns. They've busted loads of drug deals like that. They are really doing their job. So basically, the subtext was, even though she is a black woman herself, that a few cracked ribs here and there are just the price of doing business. You know, these guys, crime is soaring in Memphis and these guys are dealing with it. So let them get on with their job, basically. So anyway, they stopped Nichols, as I say, for as, as yet unspecified parking, not driving violation, and traffic violation. He was... Completely calm and lucid, and he was attempting to get out of the car. He was dragged out of the car. He asked the police officers what he had done, and he said they, they started screaming at him. And again, this is apparently a tactic that when police scream and shout a lot of different conflicting instructions at, at a suspect who's probably already nervous. It has the effect of sort of paralyzing them. It gives them a deer in the headlight because they're trying to figure out what's going on. They're being deliberately disoriented and confused, and police seem to think that makes them easier to basically to take down and to control. So he was dragged out of the car, put in the ground. He said, "I'm on the ground. I'm on the ground. You guys seem to be doing a lot here when they were, you know, like yelling and, and behaving in a way that was so disproportionate to any kind of a minor traffic traffic stop.
1: Yeah, exactly. This this video is available. I wouldn't recommend you watch it because it is really
0: traumatizing to watch. It is, it is. And also, and we'll get to this later, I am ambivalent about these videos being made so widely Mm. available, and I think it's worth talking about that separately, but to get back to, to this, he, one of the police of the white police guy there, a guy called Preston Hillman, I think his name was Hillman, tasered him while he was on the ground or attempted to taser him. At that point, Tyree Nichols was just 80 yards from his mother's house. So he did what I think a lot of people would have done in that situation. He probably thought, if I can just get home, I'll be safe. So he ran. He ran in the direction of his mother's house, and as I say, which was just 80 yards down the road. But the police caught up with him. They went after him on foot. And at that point, they proceeded to beat him with, this is the five black police officers, they proceeded to beat him with such savagery. And, you know, as you say, it's captured on the various videos that were made available, particularly on a fixed sort of street camera that was on an overhead streetlight it was attached to. And it sort of showed the whole thing from a height. And it was just so harrowing to see it. He was literally beaten, kicked, batoned. And at one point, as I said, he was a frail looking guy. The police, at one point, after he'd been kicked in the head repeatedly and punched in the face and but was not semi-unconscious and picked up again and punched again, the police pulled his arms back so that he could be beaten with a bat on at full force by another police officer and he wouldn't be able to defend his ribs or his internal organs. And As I say, just the systematic, calculated cruelty of the beating was appalling. He, was, he eventually lapped into semi-consciousness. He was pulled up and propped up against a police car. At some point, an ambulance, the fire department sent an ambulance and, and EMT workers. They were there on, on the scene for 16 minutes before they did anything, even as he lay at that stage dying from his injuries. and Eventually, he was taken to the hospital where he did die three days later. And Again, there were horrific pictures, really traumatizing pictures of him and what he had suffered posted by his family because they really wanted people to see what had happened to, to their son, who was, as I say, just on his way home from work on a normal evening.
1: There's so much to, yeah, there's so much to unpick here, Marianne. I'm yeah. sorry for jumping in there. Not at but, all. But, but there's a lot underneath this and there's a lot after this in terms of race, in terms of those involved and how the name of the one white police officer involved was protected from release, it it has emerged. Can you tell us anything more about that?
0: There have been a number of concerns about the way that it appears he was treated differently. Now, as you say, initially his name wasn't released. Initially, no action was taken against him. It was then, now, this death happened more than three weeks ago. It was only in this week that his name was actually released, and that it was revealed that he had been suspended, relieved of his duty was the term, pending further investigation. Now it's clear from the video that he was the first person to really uh, to assault Tyre Nichols, in that he try- he attempted to taser him for no reason. It was that taser attempt. That panicked at Harry Nichols and caused him to run. And, uh, at the, and that in turn is what triggered the police to pursue him on foot and to beat him to death. So the fact that this white officer, as you say, had his name protected, was only this week suspended from work from his his police role after the other five black police officers had all been fired and had all been charged with murder and several other offences. No charges have yet been brought against this white police officer. Now, uh, at this point, I think it's, it's important to point out that, you know, I think we have to have faith, so far, the Memphis police and the Attorney General have behaved. It's almost been a textbook case of how you should respond to something as savage as this. They were transparent, apart from uh, with this one police officer, which is absolutely concerning. But they were transparent pretty well from the outset. They investigated immediately. They fired the five police officers who did beat him so brutally immediately. And then they brought murder charges. This has never happened before in the death of a young black man. It has never happened with such speed and such transparency. So you would hope that, and I think that it's significant because there have been protests all over the States about Tyree Nichols' death as there should be there it has sparked more protests about police brutality but these protests have been contained in in, in that they haven't been huge massive protests and they've also been almost entirely peaceful and i think that this has you know that when you come out and you're open and you treat people with respect and a police department is willing to put its hands up metaphorically and say we got this terribly wrong this is appalling I think that it does stop the the outburst of frustration that can then spill over and then police overreact to that and then you get another cycle of violence as mm. we saw repeatedly with the George Floyd protests so I think that that is one thing that that is important I think these five police officers they will all be tried for second degree murder you know given that Derek Chauvin in the case of George Floyd and the other police were convicted and are now serving prison sentences I think that the video camera that doesn't lie, the street camera doesn't lie. What we saw is indisputable. Now, already the lawyers for the various police officers involved are trying to distinguish their individual clients and saying, "Well, he didn't have a real role; that he was only a, stand- a passerby. He didn't deliver any serious blows." So it seems like they're not standing together. Th- these sure. individual police officers. Yeah, but yeah, let me
1: let me ask you there because we're in a week here in Ireland where. This body camera evidence is now up for debate and there's been serious assaults on police over here. This is a hot topic, but what certainly isn't an issue here is these specialized units, this Scorpion oh. unit, inverted commas, costs more than $28 million a year to put together a unit like this yeah. in Memphis. And obviously, as you say, it's not unheard of. It's quite a normal thing in many cities across right. America. That must be coming under scrutiny now as well.
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, and it has been for years. The one in, you know, as you say, these have happened in Los Angeles, and Baltimore, New York, in, in most of the major cities in America at some point or other. They set up these and it's almost seems some, sometimes that it's as much for optics as anything else. But they set up these units in a, like a quasi-militia almost. Yeah, that's and what I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah. And they're given loads of arms, are given loads of capability. And the problem with them is, a lot of times they operate in unmarked cars and they are plain clothes. So if you know, if you're somebody like Tyree Nichols, and suddenly you're surrounded by these guys who jumped out of unmarked cars, there are no sirens blaring, there are no blue lights. So well, your immediate reaction is going to be to panic. You are probably going to think that you are in fact being mugged or you are you're being assaulted. So it is a problem, but also in power,
1: it's no. the power—the power that these gangs. Exactly. They, when I say gangs. That's not the term to use, but that is how they're operating in some ways. That if you know that, well, we can blur the line here and we can get away with X, Y, and Z because it'll be in the name of the undercover scorpion yeah. unit. That we know the power corrupts, and this mustn't be, as you say, an isolated incident. Is there any calls to just disband any type of unit like this? Across America, because it just yeah. can't be trusted or relied upon.
0: Well, most of them—the one in LA has been disbanded, the one in New York has been disbanded, the one in in Baltimore. These are the just the ones I know of, They've all been disbanded over the years, and now the one this Scorpion unit has also been disbanded, even though it was only set up about eighteen months ago. And it's exactly as he said. They get this—you know—they work in four teams of ten, and it's like they—they they really. It's like we're taking back the streets and it's part dirty Harry. It's part sort of ego. And I said it's part that they're on a sort of quasi militia basis and that they really believe that they're in a war mentality. That they, you know, they, they it's they sort of have this it's us or them mentality. And it's being seen over and over again that they carry out abuses, they brutalize people in ways they believe that they are above the law, and they believe that even the regulations that apply to ordinary patrol officers or ordinary police officers do not apply to them because they think they have a bigger mission, a more ambitious mission, and that, and they're also recruited specially, so they see themselves as the elite. They're you know, they yes. regarded as that within their police precincts, certainly. Mm. Uh, so with all that, and with a lack of oversight, with a lack of supervision, and as I say, egos and adrenaline and this sort of superhero complex that they seem to have, You know, these things happen repeatedly. This also happened. It's so strange because Al Sharpton delivered the eulogy. And I remember, and I'm writing about that this in this week's Sunday Business Post, 20 years ago when I was just on a trip to New York with a plan to set up a US office there for the Business Post, I went to interview Al Sharpton. At that stage, he was considered a, a very, very controversial figure in New York. But it was just days after Amadou Diallo had been killed. Now, he was shot 41 times by a similar street unit, an elite unit. They surrounded him. They were all plainclothes. They surrounded him outside his home in the Bronx, outside the door of the apartment complex, and started yelling at him with guns pointed. He thought he was being mugged. So he put his hand in his pocket to hand them his wallet. And they then said he was reaching for a gun and they shot him 41 times. Now, Almost a quarter of a century has passed, and I remember that day being in Al Sharpton's office. A couple and the you know the meeting wasn't arranged to talk about that. It happened in the interim, and I always remember as I was walking down the stairs, it was a freezing cold February day, and Amadou Diallo's father had just arrived from Guinea because he was a 22 year young man from from West Africa, and he had arrived in America to go to college, and he had saved. $9,000 to go to college. And he was also working as a street trader. That was how he was making the money to enroll in in college in New York. And I always remember it was one of those impressions his father coming in and coming up the stairs. And you could see he was wearing a pair of flip flops. The snow was about two feet high outside. There was ice on the ground. And he was wearing a long, paper thin cotton tunic. And I just thought, my God, the poor man—he must be frozen, you know, literally—and he was coming for such a task in front. Never mind the cold, but to try and get justice for his dead son—he and the expression on his face—it was grief, it was bewilderment, it was exhaustion, and it was just misery. And you know, as I say, not speaking English, coming to New York to try and figure out just what had happened, to see what could be done. And of course, as we all know, a year, year and a half later, those policemen were acquitted of all charges brought against them. And the federal government decided, no, we're not bringing any civil rights charges against them either. So they basically got away with it. Now, I think if you look at that incident, which was literally almost 24 years ago to the day, and what happened this week You can see that there is some progress, but it's not enough progress. And it is like James Baldwin said back, I think was in 1983 or four, like, how long do we have to wait for your progress? Because people, Mm. white people always talk about, oh, we're making progress. I'm doing it now, you know, and there, there is some things have gotten better. And as I said, even the speed with which these officers were fired and charged and investigated shows that things are moving in the right direction. But the George Floyd Justice and Policing Bill is still languishing on the floor of Congress. The Senate still won't pass it. There is still no real will to bring about substantive, meaningful reforms that would make the police more accountable. And that's really where we're at.
1: Wow. Well, the debate over funding the police has to be coming up as a result of this. As I said, the millions of dollars that are being sunk into departments with massive problems. Where is that now in relation to this? And I should point out, I've just spotted here that in the murder of Brianna Taylor in Louisville, Kentucky, it That's was, again, right. another one of these units that was That's responsible right. yeah. for and the deadly force that was first hit.
0: Burst in, no-knock warned and shot her while she was in her bed sleeping. I mean, it's, it is just, it's sort of mind-boggling, I think, especially for Irish people because, you know, it's just not something in the same way that we don't have to deal with the threat of school shootings, we don't live in a country that's saturated by guns. And that is important. And the thing is, you have to also look and try and understand the police perspective. And as I say, I've spoken to police officers, the LAPD lieutenant who I spoke to about this, and he said that one of the other things is that the police are aware there are 400 million guns in circulation in America. They're aware that at any given time, if they stop a car for a legitimate reason or an illegitimate reason for that matter, the person in the car may have a gun in the car. There's a real statistical likelihood it's not just a small chance mm-hmm. of that happening, and that they are going you know immediately into this defensive crowd for they're not going to take a chance, they're not going to be the one to take the first bullet. so again, the problem goes back to in a big significant way, I think America's gun culture. And then, as I said, you have these elite units on top of that who think that they have licenses to kill and who are reckless in the way that they, you know, enforce the law. And in the, and they see it as a matter of controlling people, not of, you know, it's the approach to American policing is very aggressive. And it seems that they go straight to escalation rather than try to de escalate. When I was covering the George Floyd protests in Los Angeles, a Young policeman who couldn't have been more than twenty-two, I would say, came up to me and pushed his baton like right into my into my chest, into my sternum and rib, and it it bloody well hurt. And I said, "What do you think you're doing?" And I was really cross. And my friend, who was a photographer who was with me, just said, "You know, don't, don't." But it was a mixture of just it was unnecessary. I was writing, I was making notes at the time he did it, and as I said, but there, but you can see this this sort of tension. And it's almost like a coiled spring, and and that there's a real thing of the, that. That you know, as I say, it's us or them, They're, and you can see that mentality. And I don't know if that's police training. I don't know if that's that policemen are also frequently killed in the line of duty, and not all policemen. And it should, you know, you you do have to say this that a, a lot of policemen, and I would say, really, a lot of them do go about their jobs, do them the best way they can in pretty grim situations. In a lot of big cities where there's a lot of crime and there's a lot of murder and a lot of violence and but then you do have as i said you have the racist cops you have these units who believe they can do whatever they want you have the fear of guns you have the fact that they they i think that there is and i think a lot of police if they're honest will say that if they see a black suspect a black man driving a car or whatever, that they are that much more geared up in anticipation of mm. a violent confrontation and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy.
1: The defunding, though, I don't understand when they're talking about defunding, then there's like, oh, well, defunding hasn't happened. In fact, the budgets have gone up. What is the whole defunding the police outcry that we hear every now and then from the states?
0: Well, the defunding the police outcry is something that was, I think, largely Pounced on by the far right and by the Republican Party as a way of showing that, basically, in their view, that the Democrats are Marxist commies who just want, you know, absolute mayhem on the streets. There was never really talk about defunding the police. What the talk was about, and before the expression was hijacked, and then everyone's afraid to mention it, was that police would not be called out to do certain things because they were doing them very badly. And a lot of times it was ending up with the people being killed. Even in some instances, the people who had made the emergency call to the police ended up being killed. So it was suggested that any calls to do with mental health issues, that the police would not be the first port of call, that there would be funding would be diverted into social services, into having people on call at police stations who were Fully trained psychiatrists or psychologists or mental health experts who could deal with these people who were in a state of acute mental distress effectively, possibly medicate them, and eliminate the need for police to be called. There was also a lot of talk that police should not be involved in minor road ins- you know uh, instances. and last year over a hundred people died as a result of being stopped by police in America. Almost 1200 people were killed by the police in America. Last year as a total. Of those deaths, only less than a third involved violent crimes. The others were, a third of them were people trying to run away from the police who were shot dead for trying to run from the police. Most, and as I say, some were, I think some were domestic disputes, about 100 were car, as I say, parking, traffic violations, and the rest were just nonviolent crimes. So for that many people to die unnecessarily, as I say, fewer than a third were in the response to a violent crime or a potentially violent crime. So this is where defunding the police was being suggested. It was like, you know, people, minor traffic instances, the police should not be involved. There should be like a, a, the equivalent of a parking enforcement unit where they would just go out and deal with it and, you know, wh- whatever needed to be done. The same with mental health, the same with other areas that police would be diverted away from minor non-violent work. And that work would be Basically, outsourced to people who are better qualified to do it. Now, this was picked up as defund the police, and it was never really about that. It was about a more efficient use of resources, and that then the police would be left to do what they were basically trained to do. So it's really unfortunate now that the left has gotten cowed, the Democrats have gotten cowed about this, and nobody will talk about it anymore, even though there have been pilot programs in Oregon and in California and in other states. Where, as I say, the response to mental distress issues are now being dealt with without the police being involved. And it seems to be working out really well. So that's where we're at at the moment. But mm-hmm. this, all of this moves at a glacial pace and yeah. it is so frustrating. And, but we should also mention, and I think because it was spoken about very strongly in the funeral and Al Sharpton said it about these black officers and he did make the note that. It was Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement that allowed them to basically pave the way for them to rise to positions of prominence within the police forces, and that then they turn around and abuse that and betray it by beating to death an unarmed Black man. And he did say, how dare you and shame on you. And there is a real feeling that these Black officers have behaved in a way that is more painful for the Black community almost, because, you know, all anybody is looking for is justice is fair reasonable policing that's in proportion where any kind of control is in proportion to the offense or the misdemeanor or whatever that is at issue and i think it was really felt that this was a betrayal and that it is more it's not a black and white issue it's really a blue and black issue with the blue being the police and that police training and there's so much wrong with the way the police in america work and i think that is part of the problem because i cannot see really how even legislation, even the George Floyd and Policing Act, even if you remove qualified immunity from the police so that if a policeman beats somebody or brutalizes somebody, they can then sue them personally. At the moment, you can't do that in the States. And and I, I don't know. It's very hard because it's a mindset. It's like the gun culture in America. I don't know how you change it. And I think that for all the talk about legislation and Reforms that would be very good and would be very sensible until you change the way that American police and America police is in the country as a whole and the mindset behind that. I don't think these instances are going to become any fewer. The difference now is that, as with Tyree Nichols and as in the case of George Floyd, you had in that case a young teenage girl who was brave enough to stand there and film it. And in this case, you had, you know, as I say, the street camera. But we don't, like there are many more cases that happen where where there's no camera where the, it's not recorded mm-hmm. and if it's not recorded the chances are it's not going to be to meet with the sort of response that it should meet with. I think one of the things that is happening at the moment that is really important is Joe Biden's appointment of federal judges in, in the first two ter- two years. You know, his first two years, he has appointed about ninety seven federal judges. Three quarters of these are women. Over half of them, uh, in total, are from non-white backgrounds. They're Asian, they're Hispanic, they're Black. And also, even more significantly, and most of them come from state colleges or were public defenders. And this is really the way to change the criminal justice system in America. You have 1,700 federal judges in America and about 209 courts. They are overwhelmingly run and presided over by men who come from, and we did speak about elite colleges before when we spoke about Jim Jordan, but and I totally took the listeners, I think it was Pat's observation, that there's nothing wrong with going to a non-elite college. And absolutely. And in this context, it's such a good thing because these people, these judges who are being appointed, who have been appointed, are coming from communities like these, like the people who are being policed. They're not coming Mm -hmm. from wealthy, white, privileged backgrounds. They know what it's like to live in these communities. They know what it's like to work as a public defender for somebody who had no chance Starting off in life, they know to be skeptical of police when they give evidence because they have, they've come from those communities. And I think that, you know, if you can't change it at the police end, I think an effective way to change things is to change it at the judicial end, at the top end of the criminal justice system, if you will. So I think that is something that is hopeful and hopefully that will continue. Donald Trump appointed, I think, 85 judges. I think more than three-quarters of them were white men who were prosecutors or worked for corporations. So this is bringing about a sea change in in the way that judges are being appointed. And I think, once again, Joe Biden has been twice as bold with this and as proactive as Barack Obama, as Bill Clinton, as any of his Democratic predecessors. And it's something that's really worth lauding because it is something that can bring about change and that can give I think black people and minorities and Hispanics and Asians who have been brutalized by police, the belief that at least they might get a fair hearing, you know, if, when, yeah. if and when their cases do end up in court.
1: So that's part one of our discussion here on Irishman in America. If you'd like to hear an ad-free version of the show with a further 30 minutes of discussion on Stormy Daniels, Donald Trump, the rematch. Is it too long ago? That's the question that Donald Trump wants to know. Is it too far in the past for it to matter? We'll talk about Donald Trump's hatred of windmills. Look ahead to CPAC, to Santos. And of course, we'll do our George Santos roundup with a fancy George Santos jingle that you're going to love. We'll also look at maybe the most unintentionally hilarious film of the year, and how you can get your hands on it. It's all over there on patreon.com forward slash
0: abroad. Ready? You have the cameras rolling? This is a miracle. A lot of people who would probably consider themselves liberal have done very well financially under the Donald Trump four years. You encourage